Before we begin, I'd like to share some programming notes. If you have not yet done so, please visit torchweb.org to get your free mitzvah magnet. We're giving out torch Shabbat light switch covers. You go to the website. There's a banner. Click on the banner and put in your information in the form. We'll send it to you for free. We're giving them out for free, the mitzvah magnets. And, of course, if you enjoy our work, if you enjoy our classes, if you enjoy our podcasts, please consider supporting Torch as we approach the end of the year. As you may or may not know, our organization is a non-profit organization. We only subsist on the generosity of our friends, our supporters, our donors, the people who appreciate what we do and want to support us. So as we approach the end of the year, I'd like to make a request. If anyone, everyone could go to the website, torchweb.org, and consider partnering with us in the good work of Torch that we do year-round. We're up to the seventh principle of the 13 principles of the Rambam. We just spent two classes talking about the sixth principle, which is the principle of prophecy. And the seventh is similar but quite different, as we shall see, and that is the unique nature of Mosaic prophecy, the prophecy of Moshe, of Moses. That is its own principle, the 13 principles, principle number seven, to believe in the prophecy of Moses. Now, the Rambam, when he delineates this principle, he breaks it down into two parts. He talks about Moses' persona, his stature, his spiritual accolades and accomplishments. And in addition, he talks about the unique nature of the prophecy of Moses and how it differed from the prophecy of all the other prophets. So I want to go through what the Rambam says. It's very interesting to see how he couches, how he frames this principle. So he begins by telling us is that Moses was the father of all prophets, both the father of the prophets that preceded him and the prophets that come subsequently, and they are beneath him in stature, A. And then he goes on to tell us very fascinating things. Moses was the choicest of the human species. He understood, he grasped from the knowledge of God more than any other human, both those that came before him and those that came after him. And that he, his stature and how he eclipsed all the other humans, he arrived to an angelic stature. He was like an angel. There was no screen. There was no barrier that he didn't penetrate and go through. And he had no bodily inhibitors He had no drawbacks, no character flaws, not big ones, not small ones. All the sensual and fantastical forces were eliminated from him. He was distinct in that he lost the forces of arousal or desire, and all he had was supreme, unadulterated intellect. And regarding this, we're told that he would speak to God, without any interface, without any intermediary, without any angelic barrier separating him and God. And then he tells us that I really want to clarify this great matter, the matter relating to Moshe as a person and his stature. And I want to unlock the lock of the verses of the Torah to explain what it means that God speaks to Moses mouth to mouth. However, I saw that in order to actually broach this topic, I will need many introductions and I will have to 
give you a lot of preparatory prerequisite information to do that. First, I'll have to explain what the essence of angels are and how angels are different and distinct from God. And then I'll have to explain the power of the soul. And I'll have to expand the subject until I explain all the visions and all the descriptions of the prophets and how they portrayed God versus the angels. And I'll have to talk about the concept of shiur koma, which is loosely translated as stature. And even then, after I give all these introductions to talk about what Moses is and what he represents and what his persona was and what his stature was, if I give all those introductions, even if I do it very briefly, it's going to be at least 100 pages. And therefore, I'm not going to talk about it so much. I'm going to either write it in the book of lectures that I intend to write or in the book talking about prophecy that I'm in the process of writing or I'm going to write another book to explain this. What he's telling us is, is that even though we talked about Moses being this choices of human species, this angelic figure, to actually understand what it means, you really need a lot more information. And then he says, okay, that's my introduction. That's the preamble. And now let me go back to the seventh principle, and that is that Moses' prophecy is different than the prophecy of all the other prophets in four distinct ways. Number one, that God speaks to him directly without an angelic interface, quotes the verse, I speak to mouth to mouth. Number two, Moses does not need to be lulled into a state of suppression in order to prophesy. He doesn't need to be sleeping. He doesn't need to have an, a, a nocturnal vision. He doesn't need to fall into a slumber during the day. That's all true by all the other prophets. But Moses is standing. Moses is erect. Moses is totally aware, has all his faculties with him when he is prophesying. That's the second. The third, that when all the other prophets have prophecy, there is a yin and yang. There is an ascension of their spiritual and a concomitant reduction of of their physical vitality. So their strength that gets weakened, they have trepidation, they may even have convulsions because there is a certain resistance, there's a certain part of them that's rebelling and therefore that has to be suppressed or it's weakened or it suffers as a result. I mean, there's, there's tension. This, this is not a smooth transaction. There's tension and therefore part of their existence is going to suffer when the other part is going to ascend, whereas Moses is not like that at all. And finally, all the other prophets can have prophecy on demand. They could prime themselves for prophecy. They could stand for a day or many days or many months and try to prepare. And God says, maybe they'll have prophecy. Maybe they won't have prophecy. It's up to God to decide. Even if they are worthy, they cannot initiate it. Whereas Moses, whenever he wants to talk to God, he walks in and he asks his questions. So that's the end of this principle, the principle of Mosaic prophecy, which again falls into two parts. The unparalleled stature of Moses as a human, of being the choicest human, of being like an angel who has penetrated the highest levels and really ascended above the angels, and the unparalleled nature of his prophecy. And the Rambam elsewhere, he sticks to this format of the four differences between Mosaic prophecy and all the other prophecies. Every other prophet in these four ways is different than Moses. 
And thus, Moses' prophecy is qualitatively different. And again, he goes back to this idea that Moses is akin to an angel, and he's always ready and always primed for prophecy, and whenever he wants, he can initiate it. But in Rambam's other writings, he adds another piece of the puzzle. He points out, quoting from the Talmud, that Moses' prophecy was dynamic, meaning that he achieved this unparalleled stature and this unparalleled prophecy, but it was a certain point in his progression as a prophecy where he reached that level. He wasn't always like that. He ascended from a lower level of prophecy to a higher level of prophecy, but once he reached the absolute pinnacle, he stayed there for the rest of his life. And he points to the point in history, in in the progression where that happened, after Sinai, after the Sinai, meaning the first part of Sinai, after the Ten Commandments, God tells Moses, go tell them, i.e. the rest of the Jewish people, to return to their tents. Three days before Sinai, God tells Moses, go tell the people, to separate from their wives, to kind of live as an ascetic for three days to prepare for the most consequential event in human history, revelation of God at Sinai. And as an aside, the concept of revelation of the revelation of Sinai is going to feature later on in this principle and in subsequent principles of the 13 principles. So for a couple of days before the Sinai experience, everyone is leaving their tent, so to speak, leaving their wives, trying to live like an angel a little bit in preparation for the Sinai experience 50 days after the Exodus. And that is emblematic that all the other prophets have a dual life. They have their life as a prophet, and they have their personal individual life. And therefore, when they achieve a level of prophecy, they return, afterwards, when they're done, they return to their tents. They return to live as a human, as a body. They go back to living life as a standard issue human. And of course, they have these ups and downs. They have prophecy, and then they have to prepare for it, and they have to be ready, to be in the zone. And then afterwards, they go back to their tents. However, Moses, our master, at this juncture, once he departed from his tent, God says, you send everyone else back, but you don't go back. And then the Ramam adds some critical lines. At that juncture, he separated from his wife, and anything that is similar to that, any other activity that normal humans, normal body-bound humans do, Moses did not do it. His mind was tied up in God, and he did not depart from that level forever. And therefore, his face exuded brightness. His face was, his countenance, his visage was very bright, as bright as the sun, says the Talmud, and he became sanctified as angels. So what we're being told here is that Moses, at a certain point, is going to reach that peak and he'll stay there forever. He's ascending from a regular human who lives a life of a human to being a life of an angel and to being totally connected to God. And once he had that, he never dipped back into regular life. I want to point out, if we look at the first instance where Moses had prophecy, that's by the famous burning bush episode of chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses working as a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro, and he travels to Choreb, which we know is Mount Sinai, and the angel appears to him. This is verse 2 of chapter 3 of Exodus. 
The angel appears in the midst of fire. So again, this is prophecy via an angel. It's clear. The angel speaking to him. And Moses is stared. He has to cover his face. He was stared to, to witness that. So two of the things that the Ram told us are endemic to all the other prophets. A, via an angel. B, it's an unusual experience that they have trepidation for. That was present in Moses' initial foray into prophecy. But of course, at a later juncture, he ascended to a different level and his prophecy eclipsed that of all the prophets. He becomes this high-level prophet that was never seen previously nor subsequently. So I think if we're going to study this very vast subject, we're going to have to follow the Rambam's guidelines of segregating the question of Moshe's Moses' stature, his achievements, his accolades, him becoming an angel, put that on one side, that's one pursuit, and then there's the second pursuit, and that is to understand the difference between Mosaic prophecy and all other non-Mosaic prophecy. We're told that Moses became like an angel, choices of human species, ceases to act as a human, and in addition, we're told that his prophecy is unprecedented. I saw one of the commentators says, a very powerful note, that the only similarity between Mosaic and non-Mosaic prophecy, the only similarity, the similarities are in name only. Prophecy is applied to prophets, to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Abraham. They're all prophets. Moses is a prophet. The similarity between those two experiences are in name only. Today, we're going to focus on the first part of this principle, the stature and the transcendence of Moses. So I think the first question we have to ask is, why is it necessary that the Ramam gives us this preamble of Moses' greatness when discussing his prophecy? You know, principle number seven is the idea of Mosaic prophecy, prophecy of Moses. The Ram begins by saying, you you have to know that he was different, he became like an angel, is this choices of human species, why is it necessary to have that? Why could we be told Moses' prophecies unparalleled? And I think this does go back to what we spoke about last time. Your prophecy, your stature as a prophet, it's an extension of your stature as a person. Only someone who became a Moses can have prophecy like a Moses, and only someone who has unlocked Mosaic prophecy can give us Torah. Of course, the Torah that we have comes via Moses. You look at the 613 mitzvot that are included in the Torah. All of them are part of the five books of Moses, and the other subsequent 19 books contain zero mitzvot, or at least zero Torah mitzvot. Maybe there's rabbinic stuff, of course, separate. It's a separate level. The Torah that we have from God comes via Moses and via Moses alone, and this is the critical idea that the level of revelation that Moses had, it's so clear, it's so lofty that only a Moses could have been the conduit to connect those two worlds to give us a, to give us, us lowly humans, us fallible humans, a divine Torah. And therefore it's so fundamental to the Jewish worldview to Torah, to believing in Torah, it's fundamental for us to understand, A, that Moses was a different kind of person, and that B, that his prophecy was unparalleled by any of the other prophets. 
And what we're going to find, what we're going to discover when discussing or when studying the persona of Moses the man, we'll find two components of that. We'll find that A, he is going to be given as a gift. He's going to be endowed with special powers that no other humans get. So some of them are going to be God's gift to Moses. Of course, by extension, his gift to us, his gift to humanity, his gift to the world. But part of the package of Moses' persona are God-given gifts that he was given at birth and he didn't earn it necessarily. And the second half of, of him developing into the person he became is Moses himself, how he worked on himself and his character and transformed himself. Yes, he was given the great tools to become Moses, but he, of course, maximized those tools and became the greatest person that ever lived and the only person that achieved his level of prophecy and only the only person that was capable of giving us Torah and the unparalleled prophet that's unmatched in all of human history. And I want to note that the concept of faith that we have, of course, who do we have faith in? We have faith in God. Do we have faith in man? No. In fact, we're even told, don't have faith in man. You have to faith only in God. Yet, if you look in Exodus, chapter 14, verse 31, we're told that in the aftermath of the splitting of the sea, the Jewish people had faith in God and in Moses, his servant. We have faith, we have emunah in Moses. Similarly, in the run-up to the Sinai experience, chapter 19, verse 9 of Exodus, God tells Moses, Behold, I'm going to appear to you in the thickness of the cloud, in order that the nation hears when I speak to you, and also in you, the nation will forever believe. The term faith is applied not only to God, to one human, or in the idea of one human, and that is Moses. We're believers in God, but we're also believers in Moses. Maybe the explanation for that is that his stature is so lofty, his role that he plays in, in, in our history is so pivotal that our perception of him has to demand a modicum of faith. So let's begin our study of the character of Moses. So first of all, the Rambam elsewhere in his vast writings has a line that's very critical. This is the first chapter of the laws of idolatry. We've mentioned it in the past. I advise everyone who wants to get a big picture of, of Jewish history, of human history, of the history of monotheism to read chapter one of the laws of idolatry as given to us by the Rambam. It's all a story. There's no complex laws. I advise everyone to, to read that. But he begins with the devolvement of humanity and the descent into idolatry and the renaissance brought about by Abraham and perpetuated by Abraham's children. And then he talks about, you know, Abraham, he developed an idea, he honed his idea, and he began to disseminate his idea to the masses. And he wrote books and he engaged in, in debate and polemics. He taught it to his children, to Isaac, to Jacob, and Jacob taught it to his children. But then they were in Egypt. And in Egypt, with the exception of the tribe of Levi, the whole nation became assimilated. Their unique identity, their unique role, their Abrahamic 
destiny was about to be lost. And this is the critical line that I wanted to get at. And because the Almighty loved us, and because he wanted to uphold his oath that he swore to Abraham, our forefathers, he made Moses, our teacher, the master of all the prophets, and he sent him to us. The Ramam is very precise in his word usage. The creation of Moses is in response to the grave need that the nation had for Moses. They're sullied in Egypt. They're assimilated throughout Egypt. They're in a very low spiritual and physical state. They need salvation. They need a savior. They need a redemption. And they need Torah. And therefore, the Almighty made Moses and sent him to the people to go save the people. Almost as if Moses, the great persona that we're being described of here, he is handcrafted by God to be the man to become that great prophet, to become the savior of the Jewish people, bring them out of Egypt, and to become the prophet that gives us Torah. So again, we're, we're, we're getting description very unusual. The idea that at least a part of Moses' greatness is unearned. God made him to be that person. We may argue, in fact, that each one of us, we have our role. It's not the role quite as great as Moses' role, but we also have our responsibility. We would say that God made us for the role that he has laid out for us for our personal mission that we need to accomplish in our life. But here, Moshe has the most important role in history, the grandest role in history, and God made him and designed him and engineered him to be capable of that lofty mission and to have the tools needed to achieve that. This doesn't mean that it was given to him on a silver platter. What it does mean is that he was designed to be that person, and he, of course, had to grab life by the horns. He had to actualize his potential. But that's, again, just the introduction. What do we read about the birth of Moses? Chapter 2 of Exodus. A man from the house of Levite went and married a woman or a girl from the family of Levite. This is Moses' parents. Later on, we discover their names. Amram is his father. Yocheved is his mother. But in the narrative of his birth, they're anonymous. And the commentaries explain. It's because the birth of Moses, it's not just a family celebration. Amram, the father. Yocheved, the mother. The brother, the brother, the sister. It's not a family celebration. This is a story of the Jewish people. It's a communal story. And therefore... To accentuate that idea, his individualistic parents, his paternity and maternity, his the parental units, those are less important to the story. It's not necessary. It's not only a private matter. Yes, we'll find out who they are later. But because this is something of such grand importance to the whole people, his personal life is and his personal relationships are going to be downplayed a little bit. So they get married and second verse of Chapter 2 of Exodus, the woman, the woman becomes pregnant, and she has a baby, and she sees that, behold, he is good. So she hides him for three months. So Moses is born, and his mother sees that he's good. And she says, let me hide him for three months. A very unusual verse. First of all, is there a mother in the world that doesn't think that their child is good? Every mother thinks the child is good. What does it mean that we're told 
that Moses' mother really liked him. He was good. It's a very, very bizarre verse. And of course, the Talmud opens up this whole discussion and again gives us more detail of who this person is, who Moses is. Says the Talmud, she opened up and she saw that he was good. What does that mean? Five different answers. According to one opinion, his name was Tov. Tov means good. That was his name. She saw that he was good. He was named good. The second opinion, his name was not Tov. It was Tovya or Tuvya, which means God is good. Good Tov plus the name of God. The third opinion is that Moses was fitting for prophecy. He's born. Little kid. What do they know? They know nothing about nothing. He's already good. He's already primed, destined, designated for prophecy. The fourth opinion, he was born circumcised. Most kids are good and bad. Get good parts. You got the things that need to be removed, the bad parts. Moses was just good. He was already circumcised in heaven, so to speak. And finally, the fifth opinion, he was good because when he was born, the entire home was diffused with light. And just like it says in Genesis, when God created the light and behold, it was good. When it says that same word, a book later in the beginning of Exodus, Moses was good. It's referring to that same primordial light. That Just like that light was good, Moses brought about that same light and the whole house filled with light. In the commentaries, primarily the Maharal, they explain that these five explanations are listing in ascending order the transcendental nature of the stature of Moses at birth, right away at the beginning. The first thing we're told, that he was tov. He was good. Maharal explains that if you look all the way back in Genesis, after almost every creation, God says it was good. It was good. It was good. And then Adam's created. And that description is conspicuously absent. It does not say that Adam was good. Yet when Moses is born, it does say that he was good. What this is hinting at, that the creation of Adam... Adam, of course, is very great, but that does not yet personify, that does not yet signal the completion of creation of man. There's something that Moses has at birth that Adam did not have at creation, and therefore Moses, when he's born, that term is applied because this is the ultimate completion. This is like the, the end of Genesis story is now here. Okay, n- now man is good. And of course, on a deeper level, we could conjecture that we know Adam did a sin and that caused the whole cascading consequences as a result, and Moses, he's the one who's there to reverse that. So it makes a lot of sense that it's appropriate that what Adam was lacking, Moses has. The term good is assigned to Moses, even though it was not assigned to Adam. That's the first opinion. And then it gets better. Second opinion is like, tovya, tovya. His goodness was not ordinary goodness. It was godly goodness. It was divine goodness. Of course, something is good. That's great. But godly goodness transcends to a different level. The name of God was appendaged to his goodness and it was a, it was an exalted, lofty, elevated level of goodness. That's the second opinion. The third opinion takes it a step further. He was fitting for prophecy. More than just being associated with godliness, from the day he was born, he was 
destined and designated to have God involved with him. Not just that his name is good and it's godly goodness. God's involved with him in his life. is going to actually communicate with him as a prophet. Next, we're told he's born circumcised. In Jewish philosophy, good and bad are sometimes portrayed as circumcised versus uncircumcised. Most kids that are born, there's a mixture. There's some good, there's some bad. And of course, our objective is to use Torah to cut away the bad and to embrace the good. Moses had no mixture when he was born. There was no bad of him that needed to be rectified. He was only good. He did not have the foreskin that symbolizes the bad. He had none of that mixed in to his, his personality. And finally, the house was diffused with light. Again, this does not refer to the ordinary light, but to the primordial light. Day one of creation, the Talmud tells us it was hidden away for the world that is solely good and light. As we know, like nothing could equal the speed of light. There's nothing in this world that is, you know, in the physical world that can match light. Light has that spiritual component. And this is hinting at that not only did Moses not have any bad associated with him, he had no physicality associated with him. The whole house was diffused with light. If someone is circumcised, that means that they're still physical. What we're, hit, what we're being hinted at over here, says the Talmud, is that Moses is the diffuser of light. He's going to have a higher quality. He's going to ascend to that level to become that angel. He's going to shed his erstwhile identity as a human, as someone who has a body. He's going to be that light. And this is what we're told about Moses at birth. Of course, he hasn't made any choices, but he's already destined to become a great person of unparalleled stature, the lights of which never seen, not previously and not subsequently. And again, there's a lot of literature on this subject. There is, for example, very advanced esoteric comments about the level of the soul of Moses. His soul was a different level of soul. Everyone's given a soul and souls are all great. Souls are all godly. But even within souls, there's different levels of souls. And the Ramchal, for example, says that only a soul as great as Moses' soul was capable or was prepared to be able to be the one that delivers Torah to humanity that could be that bridge that links the spiritual world and the physical world. And even on deeper levels, our commentaries tell us that the soul of Moses was an expansive soul. It was a soul that contained within it 600,000 smaller souls that comprised the whole Jewish people. And again, this we're getting out of our normal area of comfort, but we do find in even the simple, or not simple, but the more available sources in the Jewish literature, the idea that there was one woman who was so fertile that in one pregnancy she had 600,000 children. And who's that? That's Yochever. Of course, that's hinting at, not that she had so many kids in one shot, but she had one Moses who is the spiritual equivalent 
of the whole nation. We're told, Rashi even tells us, in the beginning of Parshish Yisra, Rashi tells us that Moses is equal to the whole nation, which means that Moses, just if you were to etray his soul, you would find that all of the souls of the Jewish people are included within that. And thus, the whole Jewish nation on one side of the scale, spiritually, and Moses on the other side of the scale, they're the same spiritually. Because Moses' soul is, is, is incorporating all those within him. And by the way, as an aside, we know that Moses, he was the one that is heralded as being the humblest of men. And of course, whenever we see things that don't necessarily go together, Moses, the greatest prophet. Okay, he's a great prophet, the greatest prophet. Moses, the humblest, the most humble. No one's ever been more humble than Moses. If those things were not related, we'd ask the question, like, why? Like, how is it possible that Moses is excelling in these, in, in these totally disparate fields? How is he also the greatest prophet and also the most humble? What we discover, again, this is more advanced, what we discover is that these are reflections of the same thing. Moses is this expansive soul that includes within it all the other souls of the rest of the nation. And what does that mean? For humility. That means that Moses' individualistic identity, it captures a tiny, tiny speck of his identity. Because it's just one out of 600,000 souls within him, so to speak. And thus, his personal view of himself is that he's almost irrelevant. It's so small as 0.00 something. It's tiny. One out of 600,000. And that is the definition of his humility. So these are the same thing. This expansive soul that incorporates all the other Jewish souls within him and to be like the father of all of Jewish souls and the fact that he's the most humble, those two are, in fact, different dimensions of the same stature that Moshe, that Moses achieved. And as an aside, we're told that Moses is the father of all the prophets both those that came before him and those that came subsequently. Now we know that the souls, that someone, the age of someone's soul is not the same as the age of someone's body. So the obvious question we would ask is, what? well, Moses' great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham. So how can Moses be the father of Abraham when he's the great-great-great-great-grandson of Abraham? And the answer to that is, is that Moses' soul is the root of, is the expansive soul that is the father of Abraham's soul, even though Moses' body, Moses' individualistic identity, is an emanation, is a descendant of his great ancestor, Abraham. Again, a very advanced idea, but I wanted to throw that out there, that Moses has a very unique soul, and this is all the things that he got without doing the work. We'll talk more about the work in a little bit, but he is on a different level. So there's one part of Moses' story that seems to conflict with the description that we get of him. He's being portrayed as being entirely good, perfect from day one, yet we read his story and he has a speech impediment. He is born circumcised and he himself says, Ani aral sefasayim, behold, I have an uncircumcised lips, meaning that there's something blockading his mouth. He's not able to speak fluidly. He has a speech impediment. 
It's an interesting question that, you know, Moses is being sent for this grand role and he has all the goods of the great leader, yet there's something which is glaringly missing. So there's a few answers to this question. The Ran, one of the medieval, great medieval scholars, he points out something very counterintuitive. He says that it was part of the godly design to withhold from Moses that eloquence of tongue so that people should not say, oh, we're only following Moses because he is very glib. He is very clever. He is speaking with such oratory oratory skill that we're just drawn after him. If he was someone who also had the sharpness of tongue, the sharpness of expression, the ability to speak in a, in a, in a way that flows effortlessly and easily, then our acceptance of him would not be based upon the merits per se, but based upon his style as a speaker, his ability to rile up the crowd, to excite the crowd, and to get followers even though what he's selling may not be true. And therefore, part of the design is to withhold from him some of the prototypical characteristics of great transformative leaders, and that way the people who are following him are following for the right reasons, for the genuine, real reasons, and not because he wowed them with his oratory brilliance. That's one idea that we find. Second idea the Maharal tells us, this is again a little bit more advanced, but we could still study it. He says that within a person and within the senses, within the abilities that we have, there are certain parts of them that are more spiritual and certain parts of them are more physical. So for example, we know that the, the sense of smell is the most spiritual of the senses. It's the least tangible in the physical world, and it's therefore the most spiritual, because it's always like that. If you have more of one, you probably have less of the other, almost always. And that's why, you know, when, when Jacob comes before Isaac, he says, the smell of my son is like the smell of, of, of Ganadin, the, the smell of, 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 of the garden of God. Again, the idea that's, that smells the most spiritual of the senses. You know, on, on, on Matzah Shabbos, by the Havdalah, after Shabbos is over, so the Talmud tells us that we, before Shabbos, we have an extra soul. What that means? Separate discussion. We have an extra soul. When Shabbos concludes, that extra soul is taken away from us. And therefore, we want to comfort the soul. It lost its extra powers. And therefore, we give it something that it can appreciate. We smell the besam, we smell the spices, because that's the only physical thing that's even close to the spiritual world. And therefore, we smell that to kind of comfort the soul. So what the morale says is that the most physical of the human attributes is the speech. Let me bring some proofs to it. Uh, for example, when when someone knows all of Torah and utero, and they're about to be born, the angel comes and hits them on the mouth, specifically. Not in the ears, not in the eyes, not in the head, on the mouth. And that he wants to say is that's evidence to this idea that the, the mouth and the ability to speak is associated with that reduction of holiness. And therefore, Moses, who is so uber-connected to the spiritual world, he's like a resident of the spiritual world, a visitor here, 
he was consequently lacking those abilities that are associated with the physicality. So again, these are some of the descriptions of, of Moses that we see in the classical sources. And I want to move on a little bit with the time we have left to some of the descriptions of him acting and how we could trace his behavior and his character and what he did choose to do towards crafting that, that final stature of Moses and the subsequent prophecy that was given to him and him alone. So the first episode of his life as an adult right away gives us an inkling into who he was as a person. This is verse 11 of chapter 2. It happened during those days that Moses grew up and he went out to see his brethren and he saw their suffering and he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. And the story goes, he intervenes, he kills the Egyptian, he buries him. Pharaoh wants him dead, he has to escape. And then he goes to the well and he sees a bunch of shepherds harassing a bunch of girls and right away he defends them. And you see story after story, Moses is intolerant to evil. He sees evil, he right away has to act. It's almost like he's he has a visceral response to any evil. He sees an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man. He doesn't care about what the consequences are. He right away acts. He comes and he sees the vulnerable girls being attacked. He right away acts. So we say a little bit of, of his personal character and his, and his priorities. But the Midrash points out that if you read this verse really slowly, you'll notice something unusual. It happened during those days. Moses grew up, went out to his brethren, and he saw their suffering. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brethren. Midrash points out there's only two places in the Torah where we have a description of a a story, a narrative, and the verb, and he saw, appears twice. It happened once by Abraham. When Abraham sees the travelers, and it happens once with Moses, Moses sees their suffering. He sees their suffering, and he sees, he sees their suffering in generalistic terms, and he sees the specifics. Abraham is 100 years old. He's just recently circumcised. He's already very, very advanced in becoming the person that he became. And Moses is 12. According to some opinions, he's 20. He's a, he's a kid. And we see the same unique word usage in a verse to show that just like Abraham, he's already at that stage where he's he's always noticing, he's always looking to see what other people need. He sees, but he sees on a deeper level. He sees from his perspective. He sees from their perspective. Moses, at the beginning, he's already at that level. Moses is the one person that we know for sure greater than Abraham. Because that's him. This is his introduction. The introduction to Moses, he's already on Abraham's level. And the minister was out to say what he saw. He saw their suffering. And he saw specifically, he saw them the working with bricks. And he said, woe unto me, if only I could die for you. I'd love to switch places with you. There's no more strenuous work than molding bricks. And he would help, he would shoulder the burden and help each one of them with their work. That's the first opinion the Midrash cites. The second opinion is that he saw, he saw their suffering. What did he see? He saw a large load on a frail person and a small load on a large person. He saw the load intended for a man and a woman, the load intended for a woman and a man. He saw the load intended for an old person and a young person. And he saw the load intended for a young person on an old person. And Moses, even though he was a prince, he abandoned his stature. And he made believe that he's trying to help Pharaoh 
to make his system more efficient and he tried to help the Jewish people. And here's a critical line. Consequently, the Holy One, blessed is he, said, you set aside your matters. You went to witness the plight of Israel and treated them like brothers. You were, of course, you were above them. You were lofty. You're a prince. And you lowered yourself. I, too, will set aside the lofty matters and lower myself, so to speak, God says, and talk to you. Of course, Moses was given all the tools to become Moses. But we see here, right away at the very beginning, he's behaving with with care, with concern, with absorbing the pain of his brethren, trying to help them whatever ways he can, lowering himself, humbling himself. And therefore, we see him acting towards his brethren with love, lowering himself. God says, I'm going to lower myself and talk to you. Moses earned his stature as well. I want to point out an interesting question. You know, the Jewish people, they numbered hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, enslaved to work for Pharaoh. And they're working on big infrastructure projects, working with bricks. Such a strenuous work. What does Moses do? He lowers his shoulder and tries to help them. How many people do we imagine Moses could have helped himself? Maybe he could have alleviated the pain of a few dozen. It's a drop of the bucket. It's interesting. He's being given praise over here. We're being introduced to his character. And it seems like he's acting inappropriately. If you see millions of people suffering, the solution should not be to try to help them piecemeal. The solution should be to try to come up with a grand solution to this problem. Moshe is manually assisting the people one by one. And that's being used to showcase his his greatness. I think what this is revealing to us is a very deep idea. When you see the pain of others, you're not Moses. Moses saw, but he saw. Moses didn't see the pain of others. Moses is that soul that incorporates them. When he witnessed the pain of others, he felt their pain literally. He was like the expansive soul. He incorporated them within him. If I witness someone else's pain, maybe my solution should be, let me think of a strategy to help them. Let me come up with a solution to solve this problem. But if you yourself are feeling the pain, the way to respond to it is trying to address the pain as best you could. What this ministry is revealing to us is that Moses didn't see their pain as an outsider. He saw their pain. No, he saw their pain. He saw their pain. We're told again. He witnessed it on a very real, tangible, visceral level. He felt their pain as much as they felt their pain. What this is telling us is that he identified with them to such a degree that his solution to the problem of a nation of millions working is to help them physically, manually, piecemeal. That in itself shows the kind of care that he has for those people. So again, Moses is being primed. He's primed as a soul that's a grand soul. He's primed with being good and being ready for prophecy. But we see him involved in a very practical way to try to help those in in great need. But the result, the net result of this is that Moses becomes, becomes like an angel. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that when Moses ascended to heaven and... He's there, an earthling walking around with angels everywhere. 
And the angels were totally perplexed by this sight. And they said to God, Master of the world, this is from the Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 88b, Master of the world, why is the child of a woman among us? Why is there a human here? Did he get, did he get lost? How is this possible to have a human, Moses, walking around amongst us? So God said to them, to receive the Torah. He's here to get the Torah. So if they were initially flummoxed, that was it expanded, that compounded multifold. A treasure that's been hidden for 974 generations before the creation of the world. You're going to give it to flesh and blood? They couldn't believe this proposal. So God says to Moses, okay, you respond to them. So Moses says to God, well, they're going to kill me. I can't respond to them. So he says, grab onto my throne. You're okay. So Moses responded to them. And he negotiated with them. And he argued with them. And he got them to admit that he's right, that the, that the humanity is deserving of Torah, not the angels. And in fact, the Talmud says the angels liked him so much that they gave him secrets, which we'll only find out later in the Torah what it is. It's an amazing description. Moshe is ascending to the world of the angels and he's capable of vigorously defending his position against the objection of the angels. He's an equal. In fact, if you read the story in a nuanced way, you'll reveal that the angels themselves understood that Moses is different than all other humans. They asked two questions. Their first question is, what's Moses doing here? What's a human doing here? The second question is, after God tells him he's, he's here to get the Torah, what? You're going to give the Torah to humans? But if you read it very carefully, you'll notice that the way they describe the human Moses is very different than the way they describe the other humans that Moses is going to bring the Torah to. They ask God, what is the child of a woman doing here? Why is there a child of a woman here? And when God says he's going to bring the Torah to humanity, they say, you're going to give the Torah that was created 974 generations before the world was created to flesh and blood? Moses is not in their eyes flesh and blood. He's an angel. Their question of what he's doing there is because based upon his pedigree, based upon his history, he is the child of a woman. He was born to a woman. He was at one point human-esque. Now he's, now he's angelic. Now he's like an angel. But he still shouldn't be doing, shouldn't be there. So they still ask the question, what's he doing here? What is the child of woman doing here? You know, do you have the Torah to humanity, to flesh and blood? Moshe's raised not, not flesh and blood at this, at this level. Moshe's ascended to a different level. He is sanctified like the angels. God says, everyone else goes back to their tent. Everyone else goes back to living as a human after prophecy is concluded. Moshe, you're staying over here. You're staying an angel. You're not being demoted from your status. You're going to be here for good. I think what we're going to read about Moses' prophecy, it's very important for us to acknowledge that the level that he achieved, both personally in his stature and with his prophecy, they are not accessible to us. It's supernatural. It's like an angel. It's miraculous. And the Rambam, even when he dedicates 17 chapters to prophecy in the Guide to the Perplexed, he writes in section number two, chapter number 32, he writes categorically that he's not going to mention a word and not an explanation 
and not even a hint with respect to Mosaic prophecy. It's at such a different level. Like we said earlier, it is only related to other prophets and other prophecy in name only. It's only nominally similar to other prophecies and prophets. We cannot hope that we'll ever reach that level. Just like we said, the verse tells us there's never going to be a prophet like Moses. It's not replicable. And by extension, we would say that the stature of Moses is also not replicable. I want to conclude by citing a very powerful and also emotional midrash, the very last midrash in Devarim Rabbah, that talks about the deathbed experience of Moses. Moses is 120 years old, and he's going to die. But he's as vigorous as he ever was. He's at the peak of his powers, but now it's his time to, to die. So the Midrash has a very lengthy and fascinating narrative about his passing. Initially, the Almighty sends a whole series of angels to go get his soul. The standard ones, the angel of death. Go, go get Moses' soul. And he comes to Moses, and Moses identifies him, and Moses overwhelms him. Moses, you can't, you can't touch me. He's like, what, what do you mean? All humans are in my hand. He's like, I'm not like all humans. And he starts to list his accolades. And then he terrifies him, and he runs off with his tail between his legs, proverbially. And then a whole series of angels, bad angels, good angels, none of them could touch it. Until God himself descends from heavens to take the soul of Moses back to heaven. And the following exchange is recorded. At that time, the Holy One, blessed is he, called out the soul inside Moses' body and said to it, Beatty, my daughter, I ordained that you be placed in the body of Moses for 120 years. Now it's your time to leave. Leave. Do not delay. Now, if we study the typical experience of a soul enshrouded in a body, what we discover is that every second that your soul's within you, it's suffering. Because it's not, it's not natural. It is reviled by the notion, the heavenly soul is reviled by the notion to be fused, to be wedded, to be locked, incarcerated in a physical body. Those two really are opposites. They repel each other. And it's only by divine mandate that they get fused together for the 70, 80, 90, 100 years of your life. Every second the soul wishes it could escape. In fact, the Midrash says that at certain points of its life, the soul would commit suicide, meaning would escape, kill the person, and God has to appoint angels to keep it inside. Otherwise, it would leave. And here we see Moses, a totally different experience. The soul says to God, Master of the world, I know that you're the God of all souls, and the souls of the living and dead are in your hands, and you created and formed me and placed me in the body of Moses for 120 years. Now, is there a purer body in the world than Moses's, in whom no putrid spirit nor worms and maggots appeared? Therefore I love him, and don't want to leave. God says, here, on a civil platter, roll out the red carpet, you're ready to go, you've done everything that you've gotten. And the soul says, no, I'd rather be here. And this illustrates the fact that Moses is on a transcendental level that is off the charts. His soul is greater. His level of purification is greater. He becomes like this angel. And consequently, he has this otherworldly prophecy 
that is unmatched and is unrivaled by any prophet, not the ones that came before him and not the ones that came subsequently. Like the Ram told us, the first half of the seventh principle is to recognize and acknowledge that Moses as a person, his stature is unequaled by any other prophet. The next part that we're going to talk about with respect to Mosaic prophecy is going to be the actual differences, as best as we understand them, between the prophecy of Moses and all the other prophets that came before him and came subsequently. This was a delight to study with you all today. My email address is rabbiwalby.com. Our website is torchweb.org. Don't forget to come get your free mitzvah magnets. And of course, as I mentioned at the top, we do appreciate all the support of all our friends, all our donors, our supporters, our partners with us in our mission. And we thank you for listening and thank you for your friendship and thank you for your support.